I'll be talking about more than just the Benjamins. Welcome to Fintech Beat, where finance, technology, and policy come together. I'm your host, Chris Brummer, and the future of finance is now. Financial inclusion is the holy grail of fintech. It not only speaks to the technical aspirations of the industry, but also a global societal desire to channel innovation to greater social ends. But what exactly is meant by financial inclusion differs depending on where one is and the tools with which one achieves and measures it. This makes it important to have all the available data at hand when judging just how far the industry's come and how much further it has to go. And I could think of few better people to help frame this kind of conversation than Ronit Ghosh, the head of Global Bank's research for Citi and the lead banker of some of the most widely read fintech reports ever published. Over his two decades at Citi, Ronit has covered banks and fintech developments around the world and has agreed to share some of what he's seen for our Fintech Beat listeners. Ronit, it's great to have you on the show. Uh, it's great to be on your show. Thank you for inviting me. So you've just co-authored a new report, Banking the Next Billion, Digital Financial Inclusion in Action, uh, just last uh, January. Maybe you could walk us through how you see and understand financial inclusion uh, and and really the, the different kinds of meanings that the term holds. Yeah, sure. Um, at a very simple level, um, sort of the if you like the 1.0 definition of financial inclusion is: Do you have a bank account, or do you have a formal financial institution relationship? So that's a very basic definition, and it's worth starting with that definition because today, when you look around the world, most people have bank accounts. It's it's it's, it's very wide. Um, it's not a hundred percent, but um, the last official data we have from the World Bank, uh, which is a great source of data on this topic, like many topics, is from 2017. And they estimated there was about 30% of the world's population, adult population, that were unbanked, i.e. did not have a bank account. Now, if you roll that forward in a couple of years' time, we at City Research estimate that number will halve. So that 30% will be down to 15% in a, in a few years' time. Right, and that's those without bank accounts. So, so you're saying it, it, in yeah, a couple of without, years? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's people without bank accounts. As in, in, you know, say we've put out a number for 2022 saying that by 2022, only 15% of the adult population in the world, about a billion people, won't have a formal bank account. I don't know if everyone knows this around, you know, all your listeners are aware, but we've had this, you know, a dramatic shift. So if you went back 10 years ago, so say start of the 2010s, the number of unbanked was estimated at two and a half billion people or half the world's adult population. So you go from two and a half billion, you're heading to about a billion in a couple of years. So, so what was the driver behind that initial reduction uh, that we've seen uh, with this sort of analog uh, definition of financial inclusion? Probably the best way to answer that question is to look at individual countries. So if you went back to 2011, um, so almost 10 years ago, countries like India, for example, Kenya would have had 
30-40% of their population with a formal bank account, well below 50%. In fact, if you looked at what we call emerging markets or uh, emerging and frontier markets, as many as three quarters to 75% of large emerging and frontier markets had less than half the population banked. Now, today, at an India or a Kenya, which are sort of probably the two examples of the growth in financial inclusion 1.0, Kenya and India were like 80%, 80% plus banked. Now, what happened in India is probably a really good kind of example of technology, policy change, regulatory change, and social and economic change all coming together to increase the amount of banked population. Something similar happened in Kenya as well, particularly if you compare Kenya to the rest of Africa. But multiple factors come in. If I had to pull out one single factor, um, particularly in Kenya, uh, it's, probably the, it's, probably the, it's probably the cell phone, uh, the mobile phone. That's probably been the one dramatic game changer in the last decade, decade and a half in what we'd call emerging or poorer countries. But policy is another very important driver. So it's not just about technology. And when you look at sort of the definition of financial inclusion 2.0, right? So we have this 1.0 where we have, I guess, the world is getting richer. You have mobile devices over the last decade being used as devices for banking. When you think about a new definition for financial inclusion, what, what kinds of aspects, what kinds of things are you thinking about? If 1.0 is just, do you have a bank account? 2.0 is, what do you do with the bank account or the equivalent formal financial um, relationship? So are you using it? Is there any money in it? Is it actually active? Do you get provided with products that suit your requirements? Just throw out some examples of what I'm talking about. So going back to India, if you went back 10 years ago, as many as two-thirds of the people with bank accounts didn't really use them. So they had a bank account in name, but there was no transaction taking place. Now, today, most people who have bank accounts use them. So there's been a, there's been a dramatic increase in basically usage. When you think about this, this uh, financial inclusion 2.0, we're thinking about whether or not people use it. So um, I guess the usage rate can depend on, on the one hand, do you have money in it? And then B, as you've sort of said, even if you have money in it, are you actually doing something with it other than just, I guess, letting it it, it, it sit there? So so I, I, I guess you're, you're asking, you know, is this more for just saving purposes? Are you using your bank account to actually enter into uh, some kind of wealth enhancing or uh, tr- uh, uh, transactions or, or commercial transactions of, of, of some sort. And, and when you, what happens to your analysis when, when you change that, you know, your, your questioning in that direction? Like, h- how does this um, change the, the outcome of what you're seeing uh, when you're trying to keep apprised on um, the issue of financial inclusion globally? If you, if you look at, if you stick with, if you stick with India and you look at the data, even if you take a 2.0 lens, there's been tremendous progress over the last five or six years. Most of these accounts have money in them. Uh, there are transactions being done. And part of what's happened is these, tra- these accounts, it's not just about letting people, of making people open accounts. It's about do you, as a 
as a, as a government, for example, you can distribute welfare directly once you've opened these accounts. And it happens in India, it happens in Pakistan, it happens in other countries. So in order to get your welfare payment, if, you can, if it comes directly through your bank account from the government without sort of intermediaries and middlemen, suddenly you've got a great use case. Um, similarly, if you have real-time, low-cost payments, if the, the payment network in the country, and this is about technology, the payment network in the country allows low-cost real-time payments or close real-time payments, people will suddenly have a reason to use the formal financial system. Because one of the reasons people didn't use them, there was many, but one reason was it was expensive. It costs a lot of money, uh, particularly, sadly, for poorer people and in poorer countries to move money around. Um, you know, you go to a bureau, you know, you go to your um, kiosk uh, to send a remittance home, and the fees are staggering compared to what you, are, you and I would pay if you're transferring money cross-border. So, unfortunately, the cost of using the financial system has been really high in the past. That's been coming down, helped by technology. When I looked at the report and I was sort of gathering, you know, these different criteria with which you were trying to push the envelope a little bit on, on the question of financial inclusion, uh, and, and you and your co-authors were thinking about this, this key question of access uh, and, uh, and, and affordability, and, and, and it's, it's fascinating because it's, it's a harder measure to track, and you're also, um, uh, for, for, for good measure, thinking about different kinds of customer criteria and even whether or not, uh, you know, lending is able to overcome sort of the jurisdictional, historical barriers to folks who have not traditionally had access to the financial system, either because of their wealth or because of some kind of institutional bias and the like. What parts of the world do you see as having uh, made uh, the greatest progress in terms of financial inclusion 2.0? Probably say... Countries like China, to some extent India, stand out both on financial inclusion 1.0 and 2.0. And particularly, and the the scope of this report was very much looking at how digital change and digital innovations led to growth in financial inclusion. So when I look at India and China over the last decade, digital channels have definitely driven growth and not just people having bank accounts, but also society using digital channels for payments, whereas previously they would have been cash dependent. And then from the generation of lots of new data, allowing credit to grow or new products to grow to clients who would historically, due to lack of, say, documentation or formal identification, not have been able to access traditional financial services. So those two big, big countries, the bear in Asia, are probably good examples. Kenya in Africa is always the uh, the country that's called out uh, on that continent as having done a lot. It's very much been driven by the telco sector in Kenya, not the banks. And that's an interesting kind of differentiation to make. When we look at it, China, it was driven by really smartphones and the internet sector. Whereas when we look at Kenya and many other countries of a similar income bracket, it's been feature phones rather than smartphones and telcos that have led financial inclusion, both 1.0 and 2.0. How does sort of the entity, you know, whether or not it's a bank or fintech or telecom, you, you know, do, do each of those deliver services in, in uh, uh, sort of different ways because of their 
sort of personality or character or status? Or is it just a question of delivering uh, the same services through sort of a different form? Like, like I, I guess, are the financial services themselves qualitatively different? Or it's or is it the same service, but just sort of packaged by a different uh, uh, delivery person? Short answer is yes, it is different. The longer answer is if you've got the telcos driving it versus, say, big tech or internet companies versus, say, banks, that's an outcome of where you are on the economic um, and policy development cycle. What, what do I mean by that? I mean, so many, many years ago, many, many moons ago, um, I was a kid growing up in India before I moved to the UK, and hardly anyone had a phone. In 19, I'm going to date myself now, sorry, Chris. In 1970s India, hardly anyone had a phone in India. It was like 1% or 2% of the population, even into the early 80s. Today, if you go to India or a country like India in terms of GDP or income, nearly everyone you meet in urban areas will have a phone and often, nowadays, a feature phone because of the collapse and the cost of data in the last few years in India. But if you look at just feature phones in Africa and India, they're ubiquitous. Um, and that reach it gives you, if you're a telco, means you get to, so you're a telco in a Kenya or a Uganda or, a, um, or even a Nigeria or a Ghana, you get to so many more people than if you're a bank. Just throw out an example of Nigeria, a country I've been visiting recently, and there are about, what, 40 million people with a bank account in Nigeria with a formal bank ID number, 40 million. If you're a big telco in Nigeria, you can probably get one and a half X to two X uh, that number of people as your reach. Um, 10 years ago, 15 years ago in Kenya, um, when M-Pesa was emerging, it would have been exactly the same. Um, the reach you have, the ability to get to clients is way different for a telco than a bank in a relatively low-income country. Once you're a kind of middle-income country, particularly like a China or Eastern Seaboard China, you're in a different you're a different ball game because the internet because you know, everyone's got a feature feature phones become ubiquitous, internet becomes ubiquitous, and then the internet companies come in with scale. So I'm thinking the Alibaba's and the Tencent's and the, the you know so WeChat and um, so on. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a different it's a different ball game altogether. So it very much depends on your level of income, uh, economic development, and policy. How well then does the map of financial inclusion? sort of map onto the geography of innovation, right? So, so on the one hand, you have, okay, telecom companies who either because of their state backing or their implicit state backing and the fact that everybody may be reliant on, you know, one or two telecoms in a country, that that's sort of the, the lowest hanging fruit for the wholesale distribution <laughs> sort of channel of, of financial inclusion. And then you, you start to move uh, to Asia and higher levels of, uh, you know, sort of up the, the income uh, chain and, and, and things become much more diverse in terms of those distribution channels. Does that diversity of channels uh, and the growth of financial inclusion largely map sort of where you're seeing fintech uh, and financial innovation more generally? That's a, that's a really interesting question. Um, if you sort of overlay the map of innovation in more general terms with the map of financial inclusion, or even FinTech. And maybe I could start with an example closer to, um, to you and your listeners if it, uh, compared to where I'm based. So if I, look, if I look at the US, you could say that there's been 
huge burst of innovation um, in general in, in the last you know several decades, whether it was in, in the kind of Boston. New England corridor several decades ago, or more recently on the West Coast. When I look at financial, not in inclusion, but if I look at financial innovation on the consumer side, what's the last big, really interesting financial innovation you could say the U.S. led the world in? Probably credit cards. If I look at financial innovation in the last few years, the last 10 years, how much has really come out of the U.S.? Whereas back in the 50s and 60s, uh, as when you know the U.S. was center of the world in terms of economically, it was just so dominant post WW2. So many of the form factors that came out of the emerging U.S. middle class as the you know as the consumer you know, this, 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 this consumer classes created in the U.S. in the 50s and 60s. So many of these form factors then go around the world. In fact, U.S. banks often uh, or U.S. card companies take to take it around the world. So. Credit cards grow in Asia or in places like Singapore or in in in, in London, uh, latterly in Dubai where I'm based. But it, it was an it was an American invention. Now, if you look at the last 10, 15 years, and I think about really kind of novel or interesting new financial innovation, the phone becoming the card effectively, uh, that came out of China. Um, the ubiquity now, if you go to East Coast China of basically having to pay with your phone. Yeah, there's Apple Pay and there's, you know, you can pay, you know, through Android Pay and so on. And uh, But in terms of mass adoption, what's happened in China is off the chart in financial innovation, you could say. Um, similarly, the example I threw out earlier of Kenya, um, uh, the sort of the growth of uh, mobile money. So really almost, you know, financial inclusion 1.0, but that's hugely helpful. Uh, if you're a migrant worker in a, in a, in a city sending money home, it was safer, it was cheaper. It led to measurable welfare improvements back in rural, rural communities in, in Kenya. So these kind of changes don't seem to have happened in real innovation hubs. Silicon Valley hasn't really given us a huge amount of financial innovation compared to what we've seen out of Hangzhou or Nairobi. I guess I'll start off as a very sort of first level 10,000 foot question is, is whether or not uh, financial inclusion is even profitable, and you know, is the profitability or or how geographically dependent is, for lack of a better word, the profitability of financial inclusion? Right. So if you have like larger populations and have unbanked people, and you can funnel them some way, then there's more volume. Is that a possible driver, or, or or were there more conscious decisions just just being made in terms of you know from a policy perspective uh, in different parts of the world? I think it's about scale and existing infrastructure. So if you're in the last 20 years, uh, you're sitting in the UK or the US, you've already got a pretty well built up uh, financial infrastructure that, big, that, that, got, that got built up in the 50s, 60s, 70s. So I'm thinking about you know, getting a formal bank account, getting a kind of card-based payment system going, and then over time, um, particularly in the UK, more of a real-time payment system. If you sort of change the story back to China or East Africa or India 20 years ago, 15 years ago, you don't have that inbuilt infrastructure, the financial infrastructure. Um, so circa 95 in the US and the UK, it's pretty banked. Yes, there are social policy failures and you know, 
there are people outside the, the formal banking system who are getting overcharged for you know check cashing or whatever, and that there's a there is a policy problem there to be solved. But it's nothing of the scale. Uh, if you're sitting in Kenya or India or China, circa 1995. So if you're a policymaker, it's a bigger, bigger issue. Then economic change and technological change acts as the accelerant. So, so what do I mean? I mean, if you're building an e-commerce-based economy or a big e-commerce company in China early 2000s, not everyone has a credit card. So you've got to think about alternatives. So you end up building an online uh, phone-based uh, payment channel. Now, that also happens in the US. Um, you know, PayPal grows up, and then over up many years later, Venmo and Zelle, but you've already got credit cards. So it's, it's not as much of a life and death, oh, I've got to build this um, challenge as it, is in, is in, as it is in China 10, 15 years ago. But if you're in India and you want to, as a government, you want to find new ways, more efficient ways of distributing welfare, Getting people into the formal banking system is is a huge welfare gain. It's a huge policy gain. So I think I just think the scale of these can you call it challenges or opportunities in the emerging markets have been of just a different magnitude altogether. What do you think, looking forward, will be the next big thing uh, that will be impacting your data on financial inclusion? I mean, is digital identity, cryptocurrencies, open banking? I mean, what are the developments, or or what is the development that you think? will really move the dial, uh, whether or not in emerging markets or in, in more developed um, financial jurisdictions? I think it's a combination of the phone and digital identity. Um, identity, uh, identity often is the biggest challenge in a traditional banking environment. A, tra- a, traditional, I mean, a traditional banking environment is usually based on physical assets like collateral and physical documentation, like prove who you are. Here's a piece of paper that proves who I am. Um, or here's a, here's a plot of land or a, a physical asset that I can pledge as collateral if you lend to me. Um, now, that is not a problem generally if you're sitting in the UK or the US. If you're sitting in an emerging market, that often becomes a big problem. In the U.S., in the U.K., everyone's got a driving license or, in the case of the U.K., a passport or some. If you go to a Nigeria, you go to many kind like in India 15 years ago, most people didn't have a formal state-given identity. So if you were in India 15, 20 years ago, you're a bank and you go, hey, I want to lend to not just the super wealthy people. You say, well, this young worker needs to borrow money for, for a scooter. Great, I'll lend to him because he needs a scooter to get to work. It's, it's a really, you know, it's a really important thing. So he's not going to default on that. But what happens to the next cycle? Oh, the young worker loses his job and he goes back to his home village. You don't know who that worker was, oftentimes, because there just wasn't formal identification. Now with this digital-based identity, uh, biometric ID scheme we have in India called Aadhaar, for if you're a bank, you have much more certainty about who you're lending to. Um, Similarly, if you go to Nigeria today, there are 40 million people with a bank account, but the population is, what, 200 million people? Adult population, I don't know how much that will be adult, but let's say it's 100 or so that you could say could be a, a bankable population. But most of them don't have a formal digital ID. But many of them will have a feature phone. And 
if you say, right, to get a phone, you need some ID, your phone can become your ID. Your phone number basically can become a bank account. So I think a combination of, of the phone and digital ID sponsored by governments or other authorities will be really important drivers. At what stage in the life cycle of a new financial technology do you usually expect the greatest contributions to, to, to financial inclusion? I mean, at the outset uh, of a new financial technology or, or really as it m- matures and other actors um, are, are able to, to assess it? I don't think the biggest impact is driven by, by, by a new technology per se. I guess it depends on how we're defining new technology. When I think about in the last 10 years, the growth we've seen in financial inclusion and so the countries I've mentioned in this conversation, like in India, China, Kenya, there were was some pre-existing conditions, mainly the growth of the phone, whether the feature phone or the smartphone, that was like a pre-requirement. It had to be there. And then something happened from the outside, um, whether it was government action in India or one big de facto monopolist telco company in Kenya or the growth of these internet platform companies in China, then there was a, there was a change that happened. And it was a combination of pre-existing technology and institution or institutions driving that change and um, scale. These really drive, just to really drive financial inclusion, you need scale. So it has to be in a poor country, a large telco or the government uh, or middle-income countries. It can be these big tech platform companies. you need scale. If you're looking for like an interesting, really interesting idea, now that could come from any size of company. And particularly, say, in the credit space, or you could now say maybe in some of the more middle-income countries, the, like the investing space, it could be a small company doing it. Um, uh, so, for example, in, if you're um, in, a, in a country like Nigeria, it's really hard for a young person or a lower-income person to get access to the best investment returns. If you're a wealthy person or typically older person, you can go and buy a government bond and that will give you a high return. If you don't have the amount of savings to go and buy a government bond, which is actually outside the reach of most individuals, you end up keeping your money in transaction accounts or low-yielding accounts. Now, there's a, there's a fintech in Nigeria that said, hey, we can solve this problem um, by doing fractional ownership. And fractional ownership of assets has been done uh, in the U.S., in Israel, I mentioned the Nigerian example, all over the world. And these can be small companies, it can be big companies, and some, some, sometimes the idea can come from a small company. But to really hit financial inclusion at scale, uh, you know, bring a lot of people into the, into the system, have them transacting, moving money around, you need, you need a large institution somewhere. And that's normally a government telco or a big tech platform company. Run it. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Chris. The geography of fintech is vast, as is that of financial inclusion. But what makes financial inclusion especially difficult to chart are not only the definitions and meanings of the term, but also how financial inclusion is delivered and the widely varying needs of customers around the world. Developing sound policy anywhere is thus largely a country-dependent exercise, but one that still relies on comparative data and evaluating strategies and best practices successful in other parts of the world. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, 
please be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to get in touch, just hit me up at Chris Brummer DR. That's at C-H-R-I-S-B-R-U-M-M-E-R-D-R. We'd love to hear from you. Fintech Beat is produced by CQ Roll Call, a leader in nonpartisan political and policy news and analysis for more than 70 years. CQ Roll Call is part of Fiscal Note, a global technology and media company.